for decades there has been a movement in the evangelical world focused on church growth. And even without knowing it, if you've been in evangelical churches or theologically conservative churches for the last few decades, you have probably been influenced by this movement. You may not know all the ideas or the principles or the beliefs of it, but you may know some of the books. Things like The Purpose Driven Church, Simple Church, Organic Church, The Unstuck Church, The Sticky Church. These books are, are very common, and you may have heard of some of them. And I'm not saying anything in them is wholly good or wholly bad. Typically, these books and, and different uh, speakers and conferences in this movement have focused on either taking a group or a selection of churches that have had exponential growth and studying what made them grow, what common variables existed among them that would lead to their growing in numbers and attendance and membership. Sometimes it was more anecdotal. It was a successful pastor like Rick Warren at Saddleback Church, the author of The Purpose Driven Church, who was trying to write and articulate how it was that his church was so successful. What principles did they put into place? What practices did they put into place? Now, the movement itself is commendable in that really at the end of the day, what they're trying to do is fulfill the Great Commission, to make disciples of all nations to the best of their ability, the most effective way they can. But sometimes the, the recommendations, it seems, are more harmful for churches than helpful. I personally want to look less to those books on the shelves, although they may be important and helpful to read at times, and look to God's Word, to the Scripture, to see how a church begins, how it gets started, and how it grows from there. When we look here in Acts 16 at the start of the Philippian church, we see that the Philippian church begins because Paul and his missionary team show up for God's mission. They preach the gospel to very different people, and then they show up for God's new church in Philippi. And we see that the Philippian church starts and grows because of the advancement of the gospel through these events. It's gospel advancement that leads to their growth. This morning as we look, just beginning in the first verses 1 through 10, we see that the gospel advances when God's people show up for God's mission. And this begins with preparation. Paul joins Timothy in the very beginning of this chapter. Timothy's a young man of a good reputation, which I can respect, hopefully. And, but what's unique about Timothy is he was born of a mixed family. His father was Greek and his mother was Jewish, which meant, according to the tradition, that he should have been raised Jewish. And from what we know elsewhere in Scripture, it seems that he was, except that as an infant he hadn't been circumcised like Jewish male infants would have been. So, Paul, when he joins Timothy, helps Timothy prepare for mission work by circumcising him. And you can imagine that all of a sudden, Timothy's excitement for traveling the world and doing God's work may have ended a little bit there. But, it's really ironic, actually, right, because Paul wants Timothy to be circumcised 
while they are going to travel and announce the decision made in Jerusalem by the apostles and elders that circumcision is not required of the Gentiles for salvation. In fact, in Acts 15, 11, they conclude, the Jerusalem council concludes, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So Paul isn't requiring Timothy to be circumcised here because it will save Timothy. Paul is requiring Timothy to be circumcised because it will be better for the mission. When they travel into these new places and they meet people of Jewish descent, he wants them to not be offended by the fact that Timothy wasn't circumcised. He doesn't want him to look like a Jewish apostate, someone who has fallen away or not truly been raised in the faith. And it's interesting because sometimes we don't always see this important. We, we want to hold our rights and our privileges so closely, our liberties in Christ so closely, that we sometimes forget that we need to be accommodating of those who do not know Christ. Paul prepares Timothy by removing a hindrance, an obstacle, or an offense between those people and the gospel. I have a friend, he, he worked at a church in Oklahoma, and now he works at a church in North Carolina. And in these churches, his, one of his main responsibilities was caring for their hospitality team, which was like their welcoming team, their greeters. Because, and he said the driving philosophy for their hospitality team was they want to remove any offense to hearing and receiving the gospel on a Sunday morning they can. They want to remove any hindrance to the gospel. They want to remove any obstacle to the gospel so that the only thing offensive on that Sunday morning for a non-believer is the gospel itself. The only thing that could possibly cause someone to stumble that morning is the gospel itself. So they make sure on rainy days they have people with umbrellas walking people in. They make sure on cold days they're ready with coffee and hot chocolate or hot tea. They make sure that they have signs throughout their building because they have an older, complicated building like we do, trying to make sure everyone knows where to go. And they make sure there are people there ready to take visitors to the right place. All of this because they want people to be ready to receive the gospel. All of this so that when a mother, a single mother who has had to wrestle her kids into the minivan and get them to church on Sunday and is frustrated, is welcomed with a smile and with people ready to help her, ready to encourage her, so that she can hear the gospel that morning and not be offended by anything else. And the truth is the gospel is offensive. The gospel is offensive because it tells us that We are sinners. We are all sinners. It tells us that we cannot save ourselves from our sin, and it tells us that we can only be saved from our sins by trusting in the person and work of Jesus. That is offensive to people. And if you don't find that offensive at all, it's probably because you have trusted in the gospel and grown in that and understood it better. But on the front end, that is a very offensive message, and Paul points that out. He claims that it's offensive. He says it's a stumbling block to Jews and it's foolishness to Gentiles. So as we seek to show up for God's mission, we have to seek to prepare for that mission and be ready to remove obstacles and hindrances that stand in people's way from hearing and receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not only that, we need to be open-minded about reevaluating and redirecting our missionary efforts. Look in verses 6 through 10. 
See, Paul wanted to go and preach the gospel in Asia, but it says that the Holy Spirit forbade him. Paul and his team wanted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow them. So Paul heads to Troas, and there God gives him a vision that sends him to Macedonia. Had Paul had his way, we wouldn't have had the Philippian church at all. But because God redirected Paul and his team, he was able to show up. Paul and his team were able to show up for God's mission rather than force their own. Sometimes we are so tied to our vision of what missions looks like, our vision of what ministry looks like, our vision of what church looks like, that we cannot see the forest for the trees, and we do not see that the Holy Spirit may very well want us to be doing something else, to be working somewhere else, or to be ministering to other groups of people. I think in humility we need to be slow to just assume we know what God wants, And we need to seek his face in in those decisions. And we need to be ready to redirect and reevaluate our efforts. Now, we likely won't be called to a particular place or people through a vision like Paul was. And if you are, uh, we're going to have a much longer conversation uh, sometime later. But we are still called to go and make disciples of all nations. We are all called by the Great Commission. Every Christian is called to do the work of God's mission. And we need to pursue the Great Commission mindful that God might redirect how we pursue it. So the question is whether we will pursue it. It's just merely how. And, and, and it's not a one-size-fits-all approach, sadly. It may be very effective to do missions a certain way in South America that is not very effective in eastern Tennessee or in even Oklahoma, where I'm from. The reality is we need to be ready to see where God is working. Really, sometimes I describe ministry not so much as trying to figure out what we can do for God, but figure out what God is trying to do and just show up for it. And I think that's what Paul and his team do. We don't know exactly what it means that they were forbade to preach in Asia. We don't know exactly what it means that they were unable to go to Bithynia, but we do know exactly what it means that God called them to Macedonia, and that's how they end up in the Roman colony of Philippi. And that's where we see in Philippi that the gospel advances when God's people preach, and they preach specifically grace to the religious. In verses 11 through 15, we see that they are in the Roman colony of Philippi, which is filled with retired Roman soldiers. And it's, it's not, it doesn't have a heavy Jewish presence at all. In fact, there's not even a synagogue for them to go and worship and pray in. So on the Sabbath day, Paul and Silas and the rest of the guys, they go out to the riverside where there's supposed to be a prayer meeting. And there they meet a group of women, and among them is a woman named Lydia. Now, we know Lydia was probably wealthy. She was a seller of purple goods, meaning she sold wealthy things. So she at least had a wealthy clientele and may have been wealthy herself. We know that she wasn't Jewish. Because if she was Jewish, you know what it would say here? It would say she was Jewish. But it doesn't. It says she was a worshiper of God, which is to indicate that she is a Gentile woman who is worshiping Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So she is there, and it says that while they're talking, the Lord opened her heart 
to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now, Lydia was a religious woman. She very much was. She wanted to worship God, to pray to God, and to keep God's commands, like keeping the Sabbath day holy. But despite all her religion, she still didn't rightly know God. She didn't rightly understand what God had done for her through Jesus Christ. And she still wasn't in right standing with her God because religion could not save her. Now, being religious and practicing religion isn't inherently bad. You know how I know that? Reading your Bible is religion. Praying is practicing religion. Fasting is practicing religion. Attending church is practicing religion. Worshiping is practicing religion. And I hope you all would agree those are good things. Religion isn't inherently bad. Religion isn't really the problem for Lydia, though, or for the religious people. Our hearts are the problem. When we pursue religion as if being pious can save us, our hearts deceive us. When we pursue religion as if our religious practices can save us, our hearts deceive us. And when we pursue religion to depersonalize God and to distance ourselves from God, instead of embracing God with a personal relationship, our hearts deceive us. Religious people may very well be deceived, and they may be among the most deceived. Because their religion does not save them. Their religion doesn't guarantee that they know Jesus Christ. Religious people may know a lot about Christ. But they might not personally know him. They may know a lot of details about Christ. A lot of the stories about Christ. A lot of the claims about and by Christ. But that doesn't mean they personally know Christ. It doesn't mean they have been saved. It doesn't mean they understand grace. They may be very much trusting in their religion over trusting in Christ. It's true, all Christians will be religious people, but not all religious people will be true Christians. So to the religious person, we need to preach the grace of God. See, their religious beliefs and practices do not save them. They can only be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We see that again just in uh, chapter 15, verse 11. It's the grace of God that saves, not a work that we have done. Our religious devotion does not make us right with God. It's grace, God's unearned, unmerited favor toward us. It is grace that saves, not our religion. So through their conversation with Lydia and through her heart being opened by God, Lydia heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and she believed. And you know what's so amazing to me is she almost immediately turns around and offers her home for the missionary team to stay at. That's Paul, that's Silas, that's Timothy, and now it includes Luke. If In verse 10 it changes from the third person to the first. Luke has joined them. And she opens up her home to them wanting them to stay there as long as they're in Philippi because she wants to serve the mission. And listen, her hospitality is a good work, but she no longer would trust that good work to save her. She knows it will not. It's a good work that is the result of her changed heart. It is a good work 
that is done in response to the hospitality shown to her in Jesus Christ. So she offers her home, and she immediately wants to use her blessing. If it's true that she was wealthy, she probably had one of the nicer homes in the area, maybe one of the bigger homes, one of the ones that had plenty of room to serve God's mission and God's church. And so she immediately wants to use her blessings, her home, for God's mission. She doesn't say, well, I'm glad these missionaries showed up. I hope they do more good work. She says, I want to be a part of God's mission. And if that means offering money, if that means hosting them in my home, if that means caring for them in any way I can to make sure they can continue to do their work in Philippi, I'm going to do it. So the gospel was advanced. And the gospel also advances when God's people preach freedom to the captive. It says in verse 16, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. And this slave girl, it says, followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Sometimes I really like Acts because Luke will add little comments in there sometimes, and among them, one of my favorites, is the fact that this slave girl had followed them for days, chastising them, and finally he says, Paul just got annoyed and commands the spirit to come out of her. I just like those little comments. But this slave girl with the spirit of divination was captive. She was captive, one, because she was a slave girl. She had owners. But she was also captive by this unclean spirit. And like the slave girl with that spirit of divination, many of us are captive. All of us were at least formerly captive. If you are in Christ, you were formerly captive to your sin. But some of us are captive still today to the demonic, to addictions, or to oppressors. And we are in need of freedom. Now, we don't know if the slave girl was saved for Christ We don't know if she became a Christian or not. It doesn't tell us. But you know what we do know? We know that she was saved by Christ. We know that she was saved from this demon that was oppressing her and from the situation she was in where she was bringing her owner's money. We know that she was saved by those circumstances in the name of Jesus Christ. And we know to this day that in the name of Jesus Christ, anyone can be freed from their slavery, their captivity, whether that's simply to sin or more. So when the gospel advanced, God's people preach freedom to the captive. Jesus tells us in John 8, 36, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That's a kind of freedom that you can't lose. When we preach freedom to the captive, though, We also preach judgment to the oppressor. And if you're looking at the outline, this one's kind of hidden in there. It's not really there verbatim. See, when we preach freedom to the captive, we also preach judgment to the oppressor. 
And this judgment might lead to the oppressor repenting and having faith in Christ. They may hear that their judgment is coming, that the one who is to judge will return and judge them. And they they may realize, I don't want that judgment. They may repent of their oppressing others. They may repent of their having owned and abused and used this slave girl. But on the other hand, it could also very well harden their hearts and merely warn them of the inevitable and eternal judgment of God waiting for them. And sometimes we act as if preaching judgment to people when they don't respond in repentance is bad. Like we should have tried something else. But when we look at the Old Testament time and time again, God had his prophets preach to other nations, but also to Israel, God's judgment. And sometimes they repented. They relented. Other times, they didn't at all. And it was still a good thing to have preached. We also see in Paul and his work in Philippi that the gospel advances when God's people preach hope to the hopeless. Now look with me to uh, verses 25 through 39. It says they've just been stripped, beaten, thrown in jail, put in the stocks so that they can't move their feet around well. They're in prison cells. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, I'll just make a comment. Remember how I said the missionary team was Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke? It's always funny to me that by the time Paul finally got fed up with this demon-possessed girl and, and, and commend uh, and Uh, uh, commanded the demon to leave her, it was only Paul and Silas there. So they're the only ones who were in the prison. I don't know what Luke and Timothy were doing, but apparently they were busy. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Really, they were just having a worship service. They were witnessing to the other people in the prison. This isn't uncommon for Paul. We'll find out when we read the letter to Philippians. He's writing it from another prison cell, and he's there uh, preaching to the soldiers and the guards and the people in prison with him. And I know we can get this idea that maybe Paul and Silas are sitting there singing some sad song, Swing low, sweet chariot. But instead, it seems to me that they're singing a song of joy. That they're singing that they have joy, joy, joy down in their hearts. That they are praising and singing God despite their circumstances. Because this isn't the first time or the last time they will be beaten, shamed, or thrown in prison. They know that these are all just temporary afflictions, and at that moment, they are storing up for themselves an eternal eternal glory, eternal crown of glory in Christ. So we bring hope to the hopeless first by being hopeful people. I know, it's crazy. Paul and Silas had had been through these circumstances, but they were worshiping in that jail, praising and bringing joy amidst the physical and psychological despair. They were witnesses to the amazing hope found in Jesus Christ, a hope that wins the day. So first off, if we're going to preach hope to the hopeless, we got to be hopeful people. But we also bring hope by preaching hope in Christ alone. During their worship service, God sends an earthquake, and all the sail doors, the cell doors, not sail doors, that's my Oklahoma coming out, or maybe it's been, I've been hanging around too much East Tennessee, I'm not sure, but the cell doors open, 
and they all just stay there. It says the cell doors and their, their shackles are, are opened. And so the Philippian jailer who's been napping wakes up, realizes what's happened, thinks that all the prisoners have run off, knows that he's about to bring shame and despair on his family, so he does what he thinks is the right thing to do, which is he is about to take his own life. And this is hard for us to understand because we're Americans, but in many cultures, they believe in the shame and honor. And in this culture, the honorable thing for him to do Instead of allowing the shame to go through his family and him not take his life, the honorable thing in his mind to do is to take his own life. And you may have heard about this in some other eastern countries as well. So he's in the midst of despair, utterly hopeless. And then, I love this, but Paul cried with a loud voice in verse 28, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. (laughs) The jailer's like, what's going on? Where did these people come from? And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. When we preach to hopeless people, we give them the hope that is only found in Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all those who were in his house. This is a side note. I'm going to make this really briefly, but we are Baptist. And sometimes people will point to the passages like the one about Lydia and her household being baptized and the Philippian jailer and his household being baptized and say, well, it is the faith of one of the members of the household that allows everyone else to be baptized. We baptize based on the faith of that household member. And this is fairly common in some churches today. All I'm going to briefly say is you notice that, one, it's not very clear that that's what's going on. It's not very clear that they were baptized on behalf of the faith of Lydia or on behalf of the faith of the Philippian jailer. But you also see in verse 32, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all those who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and his family. The family was baptized as well, but it was after the preaching of the word to them. It's not a clear-cut case. I'm just saying it's more complicated than you think. That's my one side note. So that's my little Baptist plug in there. So, We need to recognize that if we want to see the gospel advance, that we need to be hopeful people. And we display that hope by praising God even during hard times and by preaching the gospel that gives us hope. The last thing I want to look at this morning is how the gospel advances when God's people show up for God's church. In verse 40. So now the magistrates have come and they've said, you can be released. The Philippian jailer says, hey, y'all can be released. And Paul says, that's not going to work. Me and Silas are Roman citizens. If they want us released, they need to come here and escort us out. And once they find out they were Roman citizens, they were really embarrassed. And they did exactly that. But then they said, just just leave town quickly. Just, Just go ahead and leave. But in verse 40 it says, So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers... They encouraged them and departed. 
See, Paul and Silas were asked to leave the city, but they made sure to stop by the new church before leaving. They wanted to visit First Church of Philippi to encourage the brothers and sisters in the gospel. They knew that God's mission, the one they had begun to accomplish in Philippi, doesn't exist without God's church. God's church is the vehicle for God's work, his gospel, and his mission in this world. Inside that vehicle, the writers can enjoy the music on the radio, the AC or the heating, depending on the weather, and they can enjoy the fact that they're all riding in the right direction. But also in that vehicle, every now and then they got to pull over because someone's hitchhiking and they're going the wrong way. And they need to offer to put them in the right direction too. God's mission is accomplished through God's church. And so it is important to Paul and to Silas and the rest of the team not just to leave the city thankful that the Lord converted some people, thankful that crazy things happened and it was amazing. They want to go back and encourage the brothers and sisters with the gospel because they know that that is of utter importance. And we see, and we will see as we continue, when we read the letter to the Philippians, we will see that the partnership in the gospel that they have with Paul was unique and continued again and again and again, even if it was just through letters and through sending gifts. When we think about church growth, we need to realize that church growth comes through gospel advancement, not through gimmicks. Not through games, not through grifts, not through giving into the culture. The gospel is advanced, and then churches grow, whether they grow just spiritually or whether they grow numerically. Church growth does not come through gimmicks. Those flashy advertisements, those attractive events, and those things that we do to look good for people. It doesn't come through games. It doesn't come through watering down Christianity to make it just some fun joy ride. It doesn't come through grifts, cons, and manipulation. We don't seek to make it so simple to become a believer that anybody could do it. And we don't give in to the culture. And I know we would all agree that in our day and age, those churches that have given in to the culture are not growing. Church growth doesn't come through these trivial practices. In fact, in Acts 16, we don't see a single one of them. In the book of Acts, we wouldn't see a single one of them. All we see is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ being preached faithfully, day in and day out, the church gathering and assembling together. And in those circumstances, again and again, it records that they grew day by day. They grew not because they had a good marketing team, not because they had an impressive public speaker on Sunday, not because they had impressive-looking people in the pews. They grew. They grew because they made those things of first importance the things of first importance. Because without reservation, they preached the true gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace, the gospel of freedom, the gospel of hope, the gospel of all Good things. The gospel that we are all sinners and we can only be freed from our sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. His life, his preaching, his death, 
his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father. And we need to advance the gospel to everyone outside these walls because they need to hear about Christ's saving work. But we also need to continue preaching the gospel to everyone inside these walls. Even after you've trusted in Jesus for salvation, you still need the gospel. As I've heard one speaker say before, we do not graduate from the gospel. You don't get a gospel diploma, like a kindergarten diploma, walk down, stumbling around, and then to get to go out and be like, now I can be a good person. Now I'm perfect. Now I'm all good. You do not graduate from the gospel. I do not graduate from the gospel. We need to hear the gospel and be reminded of the gospel and live the gospel day by day by day by day. And if you have never come to reckon with the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can see in Acts 16 that all kinds of people, the religious, the captive, the hopeless, all kinds of people can believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and be saved by his work. The gospel is for all kinds of people. Let's pray.